Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. So, let's get started. In today's episode, I want to talk about climate change, and in particular, the need to get to net zero, and what this means for supply chains. So here's the problem in a nutshell. Human activity and its impact on the planet are damaging our prospects for the future. There are frequent temperature rises in excess of 40 degrees Celsius, causing wildfires in Australia, Greece, California and Turkey. And there is a growing inability of the Earth to reflect the sun's rays to reduce ground and sea level temperatures. Deforestation and the imbalances that brings to capturing carbon emissions and excessive waste with chemical plastic and other waste entering the sea and landfill. Biodiversity is reducing, animals are impacted badly by human activity destroying their natural habitats. Ocean and river fish stocks are depleting and being damaged by the amount of plastic waste. And that gets into the food chain too. Fresh water free from contamination is a problem in many parts of the world. Soil quality for growing crops is under threat, as is the amount of arable land to grow food that's free from harmful fertilisers. So many governments have now committed to get to net zero, and this includes the United Kingdom, who are hosting the Climate Change Conference, COP26, in the autumn of 2021. And greenhouse gases are the problem. Every tonne of carbon dioxide emitted into the atmosphere adds to the climate problem. CO2 is typically the culprit because it remains in the atmosphere for hundreds of years unless it's removed. So carbon and carbon-based goods and carbon-based production is being targeted. Fossil fuel used today will cause problems for many years to come and for future generations. So this gives a big incentive to actually do something about the problem. The problem today, of course, is highlighted by major industrial economies that are growing, contributing more than their fair share of CO2. In January 2018, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, said the world should not emit more than 420 gigatons of carbon dioxide to have a 67% chance of avoiding a rise of 1.5 degrees. And today that figures said to be down to less than 350 gigatons, with global emissions running at around 40 gigatons every year. Now, obviously, during the pandemic, there has been some respite from the emission of carbon due to the lower traffic levels in road transport and air transport. But this will very quickly creep back as we emerge from the grips of the pandemic. Scientists have also noted that If we do increase temperatures by more than 2 degrees, we face a greater risk of further heating with melting ice caps, reducing the reflectivity of the world's surface and retaining more heat in the planet as part of this global heating process. So this will impact the lives of plants, animals, including human beings on the planet. So reducing emissions to zero within 30 years should most certainly be an important objective. This is an ambitious target, although many activists say it should be sooner. But the question then becomes, how do we do that? Now, as I read these situations, I always think 
about anything as a system. And what we're talking about here is systemic change, and it's major. Individual contributions to that system are welcome, but they're not going to be sufficient. The responsibility can't be on every individual. There has to be government action to create an environment which is manageable. But I think as individuals and as organisations, we can contribute to the greater good by following the rules created by the system. If we want to avoid intensive rainfall, flooding and overheating of the planet, and we want to keep and make things better than they are currently by reducing CO2, then that's most certainly something we should do. To reach a zero-carbon future, Chris Goodall has laid down an agenda of what we need to do now. He's provided a 10-point plan, and essentially it includes increasing renewable electricity. This ensures that we can meet today's needs and provide future electric power for things such as battery cars and transport. And in periods of surplus generation, He suggests we turn the spur capacity of electricity into hydrogen to make power when wind and sun aren't available. This can heat homes, create synthetic fuels, which are chemically identical to fossil gas and oil, but they have negligible carbon emission. Towns and cities would be allowed to manage the energy networks within their areas using advanced digital controls, matching supply and demand within microseconds. His second suggestion is to massively improve insulation in houses so that less energy is consumed in heating them. So there needs to be developments in insulation materials, building fabrics, which need to be carbon neutral or better in their production. His third suggestion is to electrify the transport system, beginning with cars and moving on to heavy vehicles, because there's a heavy carbon footprint. Of course, the logistics industry has a big part to play in this because many of the existing diesel vehicles have a very high carbon footprint. And so you can switch that to electric. And again, shipping has a high diesel content. So again, hydrocarbons are needed to change the fuel that powers ships. The fourth suggestion is to move the food system away from meat due to the impact on the mission of cows and other animals and shift to forms of agriculture that don't require animal cultivation or artificial fertiliser. Move towards indoor cultivation of plants, meat substitutes and some organic agriculture. Make fashion and clothing as a business more sustainable. Clothing manufacture is one of the most damaging sources of greenhouse gases and we need to urgently reduce the impact. It's hard to avoid emissions from either cotton or synthetic fabrics, so the best solution is to buy fewer and longer-lasting clothes. We could be buying items made from cellulose and keep clothes for many years. Sixth suggestion is to change technologies for production of steel, cement and fertiliser. The key changes needed are to move to renewable hydrogen in manufacture. The seventh suggestion is to increase woodland areas and, of course, to stop any deforestation. Trees are a known source of carbon capture through the photosynthesis process. They offset greenhouse gas emissions 
And that's a big plus for tree life. The eighth suggestion is to collect carbon dioxide directly from the air and either sequester it safely or use it to make synthetic very low carbon chemicals and use the hydrogen generated to produce surplus electricity. And this could counterbalance greenhouse gas emissions in the process. Nine is more of a policy instrument for governments to introduce carbon taxes, which will change the behaviour of people and organisations. And the tenth suggestion is to develop a research plan for geoengineering techniques to find safer, equitable means to artificially hold down global temperature. So, there's a plan. Many describe the current situation as the Anthropocene, and what they mean by that statement is, put simply, big people, small planet. So the impact of people on the planet. And many put the start of the worsening of conditions and the impact of humans on the planet back about 500 years to the start of global trading on a large scale. And of course, as the Industrial Revolution, as we know it, gathered speed about 200 years ago, then new waves of production fueled by fossil fuel have changed the way humans have impacted the planet. Earlier in the episode, I described a systemic approach was needed. Well, I think we can safely say that human societies could be described as complex adaptive systems, where people's behavior changes depending on how the physical and social worlds change around them. So the system has to adapt, and there is constant interaction between the people and what's being altered. And so now... This complex adaptive system needs to speed up in process to understand the major change needed to reverse damage to the ecosystem and improve the environment. Edward Lorenz was a meteorologist and he introduced us to chaos theory. He's the person that said when a butterfly flaps its wings, the world about them changes. I suppose this relates in my mind to Plato's notion of form and the world of appearance. Because the chaos that we see in our mind's eye has underlying patterns which we need to understand. And it's those patterns and the pattern of change that we need to identify to get to the nub of the problem. And we have lots of evidence now that climate change is impacting human life in so many different ways. And it's not just human life, it's the biodiversity all around us, and it's the ecosystem at large. Simon L. Lewis is Professor of Global Change Science at the University College London and the University of Leeds, and he's an award-winning scientist. Mark A. Maslin is Professor of Earth System Science at University College London, and a Royal Society Wilson Research Merit Scholar. And they produced a book together called The Human Planet, How We Created the Anthropocene. It's a very interesting read, and it takes us through the different geological ages. But one of the characterizations, which is quite interesting, that I just happened to pick out here, is within the nature of complex adaptive systems. And they describe this as a development of two-step, two-energy and two organizational shifts in human society 
means that there are five broad types of human society that spread worldwide. They describe the beginning state and four new modes of living, one of which occurs after each shift. And they identify the hunter-gatherer, the agricultural, the mercantile capitalist, the industrial capitalist, and the consumer capitalist modes of living. And they emphasize within each human culture there is a unique way of being. And this is manifested by people's history and the choices they've made, the environment in which they live. And each culture, they say, is an expression of unique achievement, leading to great diversity and important differences within each type of social organization. Now, if you reflect on that for a moment, you can see quite clearly that humans can adapt to their environment and we are part of the complex system that we are adapting to. And the interaction between humans and that environment is critical to maintaining an environment in which long-term survival is the goal. They present a table in the book which talks about the different modes of living. And for the hunter-gatherer, we look at the added energy source simply as domesticated fire. For agriculture, it's domesticated plants and animals. For mercantile capitalism, new crops from globalization, coal, whale oil, industrial capitalism, fossil fuels and guano, consumer capitalism, fossil fuels, hybrid crops, nitrogen fertilizer are given as as examples, and post-capitalism, solar, wind, wave and fusion. That's a conjecture. But also, interestingly, in the table, we can look at the population increase. And if I just take the Population increase from, say, 1500 when mercantile capitalism was around. Population increase on average every year was about 0.23%. Under industrial capitalism, which they list as starting around 1800, the initial population is a 1,000 million, in other words, a billion people, and the increase or the rate of increase each year about 061 Under consumer capitalism, which they have starting around 1950, the initial state is 2.5 billion and the increase rate 1.64%. Very large increase in population. And if you take since 1950 to our present day, 2021, then we've got about 8 billion people on the planet. So from 2.5 billion in 1950... To about 8 billion today. So that's uh, quite startling, really. And that, of course, puts a lot of pressure on resources. And it also demonstrates the increasing energy needs that society has. When we consider ways to fix the problem of greenhouse gases, then... There is a problem because we've got 195 nations and 8 billion people and reaching a consensus with that particular group, with all the different interests they might have and different stages of development, it's problematic. When we look at the numbers, 
The UK government estimates that the domestic greenhouse gas emissions are about 450 million tonnes a year. And of that, 360 million tonnes is carbon dioxide. So you can see it, CO2 emissions are, are really the big area to concentrate on. The rest's made up of methane, nitrous oxide and gases containing fluorine. But these are estimates and the actual numbers are always difficult to get hold of. It doesn't include international transport, air travel, ships, emissions from the changed use of land, and I'm thinking here particularly of peat. Imported items, goods and services coming into the UK, go unreported or unrecorded in national accounts when it comes to the estimates of CO2 or the carbon footprint that they have coming into the UK and much of our food, clothing, steel, fertilizers and of course coal and oil isn't counted. So there's a lot more in terms of millions and tons of carbon that comes in that's unrecorded. In the last episode, I talked about food insecurity. And in this particular context, you'll recall 50% or thereabouts of UK food comes from overseas. It's imported. And if we think about that, then of course, neither is that included in the statistics for carbon emissions. So I suppose what I'm saying here, we don't really know the overall size of the problem because we don't have accurate measures, and we just know it's a big problem. The big problem, of course, is imbalance. It's the fact that 46% of the world's forests have been destroyed, and they kept things in balance for centuries. But now with the rampant use of fossil fuel and the carbon emissions generated by the things we've talked about and the ability to take in that carbon dioxide and refresh it has been taken away. So we, we don't have the capacity in the forests that we once had. But even if we did, it's still a growing problem. But we've got to get things back in balance and rather quickly to ensure that we move towards this zero carbon. And people talk about moving to net zero carbon, and by this, they balance things in particular ways using all sorts of measurements and devices to, dare I say it, uh, manipulate the, the figures so that it perhaps even looks better than it is. This situation is often referred to as greenwashing. And you can read more about this in various reports, but one of the good sites I came across is a site called carboncommunity.org where it gives information about various projects going on around the UK and there's a 2021 trend report on corporate greenwashing and the dirty world of offsetting. So when we talk about net zero, we're talking about this offsetting problem. So you might want to take a look at that. What's interesting, of course, is to look at the fossil fuel depositories, the reserves that countries have. And the leading countries are the United States, China, Russia, Australia, 
India. And then we've got large oil reserves in Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Canada, oil and gas in Qatar, Iraq and Germany. The USA, China, Russia, Australia and India have most of the reserves in the form of coal. So if you think about who has the most to lose in this new carbon zero world, well, there are some of the suspects. So what can supply chain thinking do when we think about approaching a zero carbon world? Well, quite a lot, actually. In supply chains, we know about Kaizen, and we know about different types of waste, and we understand waste perhaps more than any other discipline. So I suppose, as supply chain professionals, we can think about getting to zero carbon as a dealing with waste problem. And that's a good starting point to think about not to waste energy. And I think it's also not to waste unwanted journeys, to think about rescheduling, to think about the way we procure food and other goods and services, to think about the distances that things travel, to think about local production, to think about different ways to produce goods, to think lean, to think in innovative ways. We have to think differently about the impact that our human activity is having on the climate. And I think in organisations, corporates can do quite a lot. People in the boardroom have a responsibility. They have a leadership role to think about and work towards a zero-carbon state. And I think in supply chains, we also tend to think about systems. And I think the systems approach and the systems thinking that can be brought to bear on climate change is paramount. So... I think there's quite a lot we can do if we think carefully about getting to this zero-carbon state. What happens in supply chains in the production, consumption and distribution of goods contributes to global emissions, and industrial activities have impacted badly on the natural world. Nevertheless, without industry, many more people would live in poverty if they survived at all. A balance has to be struck whereby industrial activity has to reduce the harmful effects of emissions and find new ways to capture carbon emissions, as well as prevent them in the first place. Without the planet, there is no tomorrow. Planet, people and profit are priorities in that order. We need accurate data about the connections between human activity and its impact on the planet. Thomas Malthus was about two centuries early in predicting food problems to feed the population of Britain. Today, as we approach a population of 10 billion people in the 21st century, it's becoming reality. Increasing world temperatures with more unpredictable rainfall, leading to flooding, wildfires, ice caps melting, raising sea levels, and so on. Those responsible for supply chains can do much to help making responsible choices about procurement, distances that goods travel, and the frequencies of those involved in distribution and transport logistics. Choices about production methods, energy sources and waste, all organisations have their part to play in authoring the future destiny of the planet. What we all do will determine survival. 
I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope uh, to see you in the next episode. So this is Tony Hines signing off. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast written and presented by Tony Hines. Thank you.